All right, Philippians chapter 2. We are turning the page as we turn the calendar page. We are turning the page to chapter 2 in the book of Philippians, this wonderful letter from Paul to the ancient church of Philippi. If you've read Philippians, or if you remember even the first chapter, if you peeked forward in the book of Philippians, you know that the book has a theme, among other themes, of unity. Unity. Um, That sounds awesome. Unity always sounds good. Like It just sounds like something that's worth striving for. That's worth fighting for. Most of us at some point in our life probably had a coach that talked about unity in some great rallying speech as we went to districts or something like that. And he said, if we're going to if we're going to make it to state team, we've got to be united and we've got to work as one unit. And most of us didn't get anywhere close to state, I'm sure, but that speech was still there. It's popular in movies as well. We love those scenes where the coach, someone rallies people. Maybe the uh, squad commander, as they're about to make the attack on the enemy position, the captain talks about unity and working as one team if they're going to accomplish their objective. And there's so many great quotes on unity. I, I did a Google search and I could spend a long, long time, like sort of pages with hundreds of quotes on unity. Some of the more famous ones that I'm sure you can finish are these ones if I start them. We either stand together or... Uh, close, or we die alone. Some, some of you got it. Save that one for later. All for one and one for all. Yeah, that's a little easier one. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus said that, quoted by Abraham Lincoln, in case you want to know that. Uh, this one's from Harry Potter. We are only as strong as we are united as weak. Anybody? As we are divided. I, I thought there'd be a some Harry Potter fan that would nail that one. <laughs> How about this one? All right, before, before you start fighting and become disunited, one more, one more, one love, one heart, let's get together. Anybody? And feel all right. Thank you. Thank you. A great quote on unity right there. Perhaps one of the greatest motivational speeches Centering around this need for unity was uttered by President Bill Pullman many years ago. He said these words. He said, good morning. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world, and you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind, that word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interests. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July, and you will once again be fighting for our freedom, not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation. We are fighting for our right to live, to exist, and should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as a day the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night, we will not vanish without a fight, we're going to live on, we're going to survive, today we celebrate our Independence Day. Our, I mean, I get goosebumps just, just thinking about that one right there. Powerful, powerful speech by President Bill Pullman. And you heard the lines there. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. And Bill Pullman and Cousin Eddie unite to take on the aliens. 
we will be united in our common interests. Here's the thing with unity, and it's filled throughout the pages of the book of Philippians. The thing with unity, you can't just say, let's be united. We need to be unified. Unity in and of itself sounds really nice, but unless there's something to be united around, some higher purpose, some value or mission or identity, unless there's something greater to be united around, the calls for unity will fall on deaf ears. You can't just say to people, let's be united. What do you do with that? You have to say, let's be united around this mission, this purpose, this identity, this value, whatever it might be. But unity for the sake of a unity amounts to nothing. Unity is only accomplished for the sake of something else. Case in point, you parents who, when children are fighting, say, can't you guys just get along for a little while? No, they can't. They have to be, there has to be a, there's something around that they have to be united. There has to be something greater that unites them than just a call or a plea for unity. Unity is a tactic toward some greater end. It's not an end in and of itself. So you had President Pullman's ragtag group of flyers needed to be united in order to take down the alien invasion and save humanity. Teams need to be united so that plays work and championships can be won. A family unites together to get the house cleaned because grandpa and grandma will be there in a few hours. There's something that they're united around, a mission. There's always, there always must be a greater purpose to unity. Keep that idea in mind as we get into Paul's call for unity to the Philippian church. The goal, as Paul instructs this church, is not just be united, get along, people. That's not the only thing that Paul's going for. The goal here isn't unity for unity's sake. The goal for Paul, as he instructs God's church, is bigger than that. But it can't be achieved without a united people. So what is that ultimate goal of unity? Well, we'll get there. But let's listen to Paul's very personal appeal in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. So, if there is any encouragement from Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, these are a little bit difficult words for us. So we ask that you would open our eyes to the truth here, that you would convict us if necessary by your spirit, that you would grow us into your image for your glory because of your son's work. 
Use this text to shape us, not just today, not just this week, but this year and throughout our lives. Amen. All right. The heart of this passage, heart of this passage, is a series of commands in the middle, in verses 3 and 4. And I want to start there. And essentially, those commands amount to this. Here's what Paul's saying, my loose translation. Stop being selfish jerks and put other people first. Okay? That's the heart of what Paul's command is here. And you see it, right? I mean, Paul says it a little bit nicer than I translated there, but he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Stop being selfish jerks and put other people first. There are echoes of this command, there's echoes of Jesus' golden rule in this command of Paul. Jesus said in Matthew 7, do to others as you would have them do to you. And you can hear a similar idea in Paul's language here in his letter. Now, notice in this passage that there's a negative command followed by a positive command. And in these two verses, verse 3 and 4, there's another negative command followed by another positive command. So don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. You'll see that in just a second here. And that's how I want to work through this. So let's start with the first negative command in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Do nothing. Don't do anything from rivalry or conceit. Rivalry. If you have an NIV or maybe a different, an updated version of the ESV, I think it might use the word selfish ambition. And essentially, Paul is saying here, stop stop trying to make yourself look great at the expense of others. Stop one-upping each other to get to the top. We do that, don't we? I posted online this week about a clip from comedian Brian Regan. He does a great bit on one-upmanship. Go and watch it if you haven't seen it. Look up Brian Regan, I Walked on the Moon. It's fantastic, and it's it's profound, actually, from Brian Regan. And, uh, you know, he's, he's just talking about how at dinner parties, people will always be one-upping each other with stories, and I've got a better story, I've got a better story. And he said, I just wish I was one of the 12 people that walked on the moon, so when somebody gave me their great story, I could just sit back and say, you know, you mentioned driving on the Autobahn. Well, that reminded me, once I was driving on the Sea of Tranquility <laughs> in my lunar rover, just that, like, one-upping kind of thing. And we, we do that, don't we? Regan warns in that little monologue, beware of the me monster. And I like that line. Five or six years ago, I was sitting in the Manila Airport Lounge in the Philippines on a teaching trip with about six other teachers, aged 25 to 45, all male, and we had about four to five hours to kill in the Manila Airport before we took a short flight down to a southern island to do some teaching for a week. Um, our ages were between 25, we had a young seminary guy there with us, and I think I was around 45 and the oldest of the group at that time, so a fairly young group of guys in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Four hours to kill, we're in a lounge, what do guys do? We eat a lot of food and we tell injury stories, and so six of us sat around 
for probably three or four hours of this time and just started to slowly tell worse injury stories. And they got worse and worse and worse and gruesome. And I will not tell some of these because some of you will need to walk out. I, I don't have horrible injury stories. I have really weird injury stories. But there was a guy named Mike who's maybe five years younger than me. And Mike was a kind of a punk rock skater back in the 90s. And Mike just had these stories that you couldn't believe. You ask, how are you still alive? And you tell this great story and you show a scar, right? And then Mike would say, you know, one time I was doing this ollie off a half pipe and I fell and compound fractured both things. The bone was poking out and I had to, I had to skate home and t- try to hide it from my dad. And um, you do kind of ask, like, how in the world are you alive? And Mike would always be able to one-up us. No matter what, he just had that, I walked on the moon. It was his version of that sort of thing. That's what we do in life. We We just like to say, well, my story's better. My story's better. I'm better. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Regan asked this question in his monologue. What is it about the human condition that people get something out of that? That's a great philosophical question from a guy whose science project was a cup of dirt, right? (laughs) Why do we get something out of that? Some of you need to watch some more Brian Regan. Um, That's your assignment for this afternoon, okay? But we constantly self-promote, don't we? We constantly do this. Or the term I read this week in preparing for this message, this term self-aggrandizement, making ourselves look grand or great. This is so much of our life, either subtly or overtly, we try to make ourselves look great. Look at your social media feeds, your social media stories, and you'll find that much of it is reduced to, look at me, look what I did, look what I made, look what I, where I went. Look how great my life is. It's fake, right? But we're just doing things from rivalry. And Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. 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 You know that word. You've heard that word before. It's that feeling of I'm better than them, that we love to savor and chew on and enjoy so that we feel good about ourselves. At least I'm not like them, those poor people, those people over there. Commentator Gordon Fee mentions that this word, conceit, literally means empty glory. And then he goes on to say, it's the kind of thing that only the self-blessed can bestow on themselves. In other words, conceit is not praise or honor you receive from others. Conceit is praise or honor you give to yourself. And it's usually undue, isn't it? (laughs) Interestingly, this sort of thing is popularly seen as the solution to so much of our current psychological problems. We like to steward smallly our problems, don't we? You're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. I realize my illustrations are outdated, um, but that's the age that I am, so you have to live with it when I'm here. Here's Paul. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. And I can feel us start to shift in our chairs a little bit. This is not, this is a little hard, right? 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But then jump forward to the other negative command in verse 4. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. Don't just look to your own interests. Now, thankfully, there's a little wiggle room that Paul gives here. There's some times for looking out for our own interests. Paul gives that option. Okay, it's okay to care for yourself or do some self-care, as we say today. It's okay to do that time to time. Jesus even took time to get away and pray on a mountain. Some of you need to do that. You need to look to your own interests so that you can look to others' interests. But the point of this command is to stop looking just to your own interests. So here's a revolutionary idea or truth for 2023, 2023 that will radically transform your world if you can learn to embrace it. Here's the simple truth. It's not about you. It's not about you. Some of us need this tattooed on the back of our eyelids, don't we? It's not about you. You are not the center of this universe. You exist for something greater. It is not about you. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. It's not about self-loathing. It's not about seeing yourself as a small, dirty object. It's the alternative to self-aggrandizement is not self-loathing. The alternative to self-aggrandizement is self-forgetfulness. Forget about yourself. Your identity, who you are, is wrapped up in something so much bigger and better than your own interests. Learn to love that truth this year. Your identity and fulfillment will not be found in an internal gaze upon yourself. You won't find joy focused on yourself. You will find it as you look outside of yourself toward Christ and toward others. I could go on into this a lot more. Let me just recommend two resources for you because that's what I like to do and what we do here. First of all, if you have a copy of Mere Christianity, uh, if you don't... Um, question your salvation a little bit, but get a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Read the chapter on pride. It's brilliant. Um, there's also a little 45-page booklet. We have about seven copies back there, a couple bucks a piece. Um, Tim Keller on the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Just a fantastic little booklet. Both of those will encourage you as you think about this idea of pride and self-forgetfulness, as you think about this truth that it is not about you. I personally learned this lesson, well, took a step learning this lesson, in the McCormick Wilderness of Michigan's Upper Peninsula in the summer of 2010. I was a pastor planting a church in the Madison area. We were struggling to grow as a church, just a few people in our church, and I was on a short sabbatical, so I took three or four days to do some self-care, to go into the wilderness like Jesus and spend some time alone. And I meditated a lot on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 
You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And I can remember being there on the edge of this beautiful lake in the McCormick Wilderness thinking, it's not about me. It took me till I was in my late 30s, early 40s, somewhere around there, to, to realize that. And I'm still realizing that. Let me go a little bit further. It's ugly confession time now. Many pastors who plant churches, like I did, do it for self-aggrandizement. Now, for the record, I'm pro-church planting. Nate and I are going to a conference on church planting in a few months. I'm excited about that. But many young church planters and older church planters get into it with a great deal of pride that has yet to be painfully rooted out of their life. We think we can do it better than others. And God needed to cut me down to size and say, it's not about you. And I'm still learning that. But that, that mindset that I had, it's rivalry. It's conceit. It's sin. And it must be cleared out of ministry plans. God has brought us into his family for something greater than ourselves, for his glory, for serving others for his glory. And spoiler alert, in that we find our greatest joy. When we're consumed in things outside of ourselves, we find our greatest joy. I'll come back to that in a little bit. So, on the flip side of self-obsession, we are to look, Paul says, to the interests of others in verse 4. Fair enough. So, stop being a self-obsessed, narcissist, jerk, and care about other people is what Paul's saying. But going back to verse 3, we see it's not just about an hour of volunteer work every other month so that we feel like we're giving back. There's more to that. Verse 3, in humility, count, understand that. Reckon others more significant than yourself. It's not just an activity that you do. You know, share, be nice, give people a hug. Consider them more significant than yourselves. <laughs> it's tough, right? There's a bit of us that's starting to say, if we're being honest, all right, loving others is one thing. I can do that from time to time. But isn't this taking it a bit too far? Isn't this bad for my psychology, for my mental health? Am I really supposed to look at my neighbor or my husband or my sister or my wife or my brother or my coworker and operate as if they are more significant than myself? Am I really supposed to do that? Have you met them? <laughs> even, even more importantly, have you, have you met me? The command couldn't really be more clear. Be humble, not the stupid fake humility you see in post-game interviews. Be humble, look to other people's interests, and not just your own. It's straightforward. When I worked in a Christian camp during my college years, a group of us decided to make this our operative principle at our dining table for breakfast one day. We were going to look to other people's interests and not to our own. Um, this kind of thing is something we legalistic Christians back in the 90s did often and without much grace. The goal was to look out for others' interests. They shouldn't have to ask for things to be passed because we should notice that they needed things. And so you couldn't ask for things to be passed because that would be looking out for your own interests, but people should notice what you needed and pass that to you. Um, it was a grand idea for a bunch of 19-year-old guys to do. Um, 
we weren't allowed to ask for the syrup or the butter because people should be looking out for our interests and we should be looking out for theirs. Fast forward, it was one of the worst dining experiences I've ever had. And I have eaten sheep head and drank fermented mare's milk in Mongolia. Simply put, that group of 19-year-old guys failed to notice. We failed. We wound up with dry pancakes. I don't think I ever got my orange juice. Someone probably had to eat their pancake with a spoon. And we wound up fighting about who got to clean up afterward. It was a horribly poor application of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Augustine and later Martin Luther talk about a human condition called incuritas in se, little Latin term for you. Literally, and some of you may have been working on the translation there, literally it means you're curved inward on yourself. Remember Brian Regan's great philosophical question, what is it about the human condition that people get something out of that one-upmanship? The answer, Mr. Regan, is that we are in curitas in se. There's something broken in us, and while we realize it's virtuous and noble to serve others, look to their interests, count them as significant, our default mode is bent back in on ourselves. We may try to love others, but our, our default is it turns back and we're self-obsessed. Self-aggrandizing people. Well, some of you are like, I don't think I'm really that bad. <laughs> Maybe. Let me give you a test case and prove that you are. Um, it's January 1st, in case you didn't know. Some of you planners are looking at your calendar and thinking about summer vacations. Some of you Uber planners are thinking about summer vacations for the next five to ten years. And some of you non-planners are looking at your calendar and thinking maybe we should do something this month fun um, or spring break. But, but what does your mind run to first when you think about your vacation plans? Marianne and I struggle with this one. Does your mind say, what would my spouse really enjoy for a vacation? Or how can I bring the most pleasure and joy to my children or my parents? How can I use my vacation time to joyfully serve my aging parents? Or do you, when you say, oh, I got a few days off there, where is a secluded beach that I can get to? How many baseball stadiums can I make it to in one weekend? Or maybe like me, you think, I think this is the year Marianne will really enjoy a two-week-long wilderness canoe trip. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure she would find that quite relaxing. Our minds are broken, it seems. We are curved in on ourselves. We wake up and we go to bed thinking about self-aggrandizement, selfish desires, self, self, self. And then right out of the gate in a new year, we look at a text and it says, stop being selfish jerks and put other people first. So let's close in prayer. No, let's not. There's more to this text. Okay, I led you here, but verses 1 and 2 and verse 5 are so critical to understanding the commands in verses 3 and 4. I'm pretty sure either our house or some of your houses have those commands in verses 3 or 4 printed on the wall in a place that your children can notice it. 
because you want to passive aggressively and then kind of aggressively point them towards that. Do this, kids. Most of us don't have one and two in verse five alongside that. So if you could talk to Hillary and she'll make the sign a little bit bigger on this one for you, okay? There's more to this passage and it's going to be so important for us to understand it. Here's the reality first. Here's the reality first. We have not and cannot obey verses three and four. We failed to obey it last year. We will continue to fail it this year. Our incuritas in say seems to be hardwired into our minds. But the good news here, before Paul lays out these commands, Paul makes an appeal and he reminds people of something. Verse 1, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then the commands of verses 3 and 4 are an outworking of this unified position that the church is supposed to have. Now notice that Paul bases all these commands on something external. It's something outside of the Philippians, and then, by extension, us. If there's any encouragement where? In Christ. If there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and the assumption that you can hear Paul has is that there is at least some encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, and sympathy. So, before Paul makes those hard, big commands, he reminds the church of what they have received. And this is so important. So important. Bible scholars like to point out that there's a subtle Trinitarian formula here. Look through this. Christians, in verse 1, receive encouragement from the crucified and risen Christ. The second person of the Trinity came, died, and rose again for a people curved in on themselves. How encouraging is that? Christians receive comfort from love. Likely this love is the love of the Father, even though it's not explicitly stated. The first person of the Trinity, the Holy Sovereign Father, sent His Son because He loved broken bent in on themselves, people. There's more than a wee bit of comfort in that, isn't there? And finally, Christians participate in the Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is active among God's church, convicting them of sin, leading them to righteousness, empowering them, and gifting them for service. This means that there's not just any Paul's word, affection and sympathy. The triune God has given himself to a self-obsessed people like you and like me. Paul will draw out this example of God's humility and self-giving in the next passage even further. We'll get to that next week, but get this right now. The holy, sovereign, triune God of the universe gives you encouragement and comfort and participation and affection and sympathy. The good news is that God in Christ, out of love, saves us from our wicked self-obsession. Well, what do we do with that? 
Remember earlier, Paul said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the good news of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 27. In other words, you have received everything you need from God in Christ's work. Now, extend that outward to others. You've received from God. Now, live it out. It's not about you. It's not about you. In spite of your self-obsessed, me-first bent, God lavished grace on you. Realize how undeserving you are of affection, sympathy, and love, but don't languish there. Rise up in joy and love others who are as self-obsessed as you are. Remind them of God's grace to you and how you treat others. Do it together as a church. The same mind, Paul says, the same love, the same uh, full accord and of one mind. Put others before yourself. And, Paul says, somehow in putting others before yourself, somehow in doing that, you make pastors happy. (laughs) You see, Paul says it, complete my joy. Paul's their original founding pastor. He's like, listen, I want to be happy about you guys, so get along, realize how good the gospel is, and live it out. Complete my joy. Somehow, in loving others, you complete other people's joy. This reversal of self-obsession towards self-giving, in that, joy is completed. I've experienced this when... Occasionally, I see my kids give themselves to each other and serve one another. There's joy, isn't there, as a parent that sees your kid just graciously serving? It doesn't happen all the time, because I don't do it all the time either. But when you see it, it's just like, man, that is beautiful, and I'm happy about that. When you see other people in the church serving your children back there, you're like, man, that's, that's good. They're putting other people first. It gives us joy. It brings joy to the church to, to have this culture where people are giving of themselves. It's possible that your misery is due to your self-obsession. Realize that it's not about you, that your joy can only be found not in an internal gaze, but your joy can only be found in God's glory, seen as we push outside of ourselves. Joy is found when we're not curved in ourselves, but when we see God's beauty in the gospel and the church. Some of you are silently screaming in desperation, though. How? How do we do this? This is really hard. Jump forward to the last verse that we read, verse 5. Have this mind, have this others first self-giving mind among yourselves, Paul says. And look at that last phrase there. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's already yours. It's already there. You've got it. If you're in Christ, you have this. God has done his work. The triune God has done a work in your life. Now, realize it. Be transformed by it. Build yourself around it. Fight for it. Live it out. Celebrate it. God in Christ has saved his people and brought them into a community that should be now loving and united. A few sentences later, Paul will call folks to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. In other words, live it out, because God's working in you. 
This is the news of the gospel. God has done a great work through Christ in saving you. God continues now to do a great work in his people and in his church through his spirit. Work it out. Live it out. It's yours. You don't have to live miserably curved in lives. Give yourselves to other people. True and joyful Christian identity and unity is found only in the gospel of the triune God, and it breaks us from our self-centeredness. Earlier I asked the question, why should we be unified? There must be a greater good here. Those verses back in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 point us in that direction. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there's all that unity stuff and not frightened by anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Christian unity, seen in selfless living towards others and built around the gospel, shows to a watching world that something is broken in their lives without Christ. And it shows to a watching world that something has been salvaged in our lives by God through Christ's work. Our unity has a missional purpose in this world. Our self-giving, our, self, our love for others has a mission purpose in this world. Selfless Christian unity shows the world the radically transforming power of the gospel. We are on display to the world, our love for each other, our unity. The world should look at Cross of Grace Church and say, there's a hundred and some people, man, they operate differently than what I see at the mall, at work, on the freeway. Joyful, fulfilling, empowering Christian unity happens when we forget about ourselves and count others as more significant. Let me, as I close this up, let me get really practical in, in conclusion, if that's okay here. Um, nine quick things. Very, very quick, okay? <laughs> very, very quick. Trust me, and you can take a photo at the end. You can time me. I will be under a couple minutes on this one. Number one, how do you do this? Be a radical forgiver. Forgive quickly. Forgive fully. We love to hold on to things forgive. Be a quick confessor of your sin. I like to confess other people's feelings sometimes rather than my own sin and say, I'm sorry you felt that way. What I need to do is confess my own sin and say, I was selfish. I was a jerk. I apologize. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Be a quick confessor of your sin. We hate to do that though, don't we? Oh man, I was right. I was right. Entrench ourselves. Be a quick confessor of your sin. Number three, assume the best of people. This is a hard one. This may come back to bite you at times, but it's worth it, I think. Assume the best of people. And often, they'll even rise to the occasion. Number four, learn to forbear. Learn to put things aside. The Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we are forgiven. 
You've been forgiven a great debt. Don't, well, this is number five, stop holding grudges. You don't have to be the executor of judgment. It makes you miserable inside and miserable to be around. So stop holding grudges. Number six, treat everyone as made in the image of God. Yes, we are all in curvitas and say we're all curved in ourselves, but we're also, to use another Latin phrase, imago Dei, bearers of God's image. Everyone you meet is a bearer of God's image. Treat them as if they were created by the sovereign Lord of the universe. Even more specifically, understand that your brothers and sisters here, number seven, are united to you in Christ. You're united to, you, to each other here in Christ in a, in a profound, supernatural way. And every week we tell you to stand up and go shake someone's hand, and most of us just kind of cower in our own seats. Just find somebody and celebrate the fact that God in Christ has saved you and built something here. Number eight, almost done, this went quicker than you thought, didn't it? Pursue unity by learning to enjoy others different than you. Learn to enjoy others' difference. Ask people about their day, about their injuries, whatever it might be. Enjoy people's stories. And number nine, find yourself in the gospel. Find your identity in the gospel so that you can see how much God has given you and esteem others as greater than yourselves. Commentator Peter O'Brien writes this in his commentary on this passage. He says, this this section here, this passage is no simple ethical summons in the sense that the readers are being exhorted to just do good. Rather, the apostle urges his dear Christian friends on the basis of supernatural, objective realities that have already occurred in their own experience. Something supernatural and objective has happened in the gospel. God in Christ saves selfish people. And we live that out in joyful unity. Let's do that this year, church. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and good. Your holiness shows our selfishness and our guilt and our sin. You gave of yourself and we bend in on ourselves. And that difference between you and us is concerning and fearful. And yet, because you're a self-giving God, a generous God, you gave your Son so that we could be salvaged, redeemed, transformed by his work. And so we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit that is at work right now in your church around the globe to shape us and use us to proclaim your message. Help us to be self-giving, radically generous people today and throughout this year. Amen.